This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We're very pleased to have with us today Dr. David Wessel. Dr. Wessel is the Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C., where he is also a professor of pediatrics at George Washington University. Dave, welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure for me to be here. Dave, uh, many people would say that you were clearly one of the founders of the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care. You literally wrote the textbook. You've trained probably more current uh, directors and division chiefs in pediatric cardiac intensive care than, than really anyone else I can think of. Um, and I'm sure uh, many of my colleagues around the world are, are wondering the, the question that I want to start with, which is, could you take us back to the early days of the field? How did pediatric cardiac intensive care evolve? And uh, what were some of the issues as to how pediatric cardiac intensive care related to pediatric intensive care in the early years? Well, Jeff, as I look back, uh, really around the time that uh, I was first born, that was really the origin of both intensive care uh, around the world and also the beginnings of cardiac surgery. So if we look back at the polio epidemic in around 1952 or 53, especially in Copenhagen, where there was the realization that there was value in cohorting these patients together in a single place to provide the expert care and to provide care more efficiently. Uh, and at the same time, right around 1952, there was the development of cardiopulmonary bypass. And so intensive care as a field and a concept was developing just at the moment that the technology that would permit repair of a congenital heart defect was being developed. So the early days of cardiopulmonary bypass were really focused on children with congenital heart disease. And those were challenging days. If you look at the data from 1952 and 1953, there were 18 patients that were placed on cardiopulmonary bypass for repair of their congenital heart disease, and 17 of those patients died. So that was a very challenging time, and it represented the fact that the uh, technology was limiting, and also our knowledge base about the diseases was also limited. But then, as I think you heard from Dr. Castaneda recently, the advent of the cross-circulation by Lillehigh really enabled the parent to provide both the function of the pump and the gas exchange, and there were successes in repair of congenital heart disease. And that really propelled the field and re-inspired people to look for technology solutions to the limitations of cardiopulmonary bypass. And those changes and advances in bypass have continued to this day as we understand more about the complexity of bypass, its impact on the patient, uh, and the uh, really straightforward accomplishments that can be achieved through uh, varying the forms of bypass, uh, whether it's the bubble oxygenator or the type of pump, 
So many advances have really uh, helped this field progress and enable us to uh, provide interventions that were not previously available to children with heart disease. So Dave, can I ask you um, about the relationship between the pediatric ICU and the pediatric cardiac ICU in the early days? You were involved in the formation of one of the first dedicated discrete pediatric cardiac intensive care units at Boston Children's Hospital in the 1980s. And was the thought behind that uh, based on a deliberate plan, uh, the volume outcome relationship will improve if we have uh, dedicated uh, faculty in one unit? Or was it more ad hoc because people were gravitating to uh, where their interests lay? How did, how did that all sort out? Well, the recognition of the need for specialized care was certainly a driving factor for the development of pediatric cardiac intensive care units. But if we look back after the development of cardiac surgery in the 50s and adult intensive care units that arose out of the Copenhagen experience, we also saw that pediatric ICUs began to develop. And they came from folks who were interested in anesthesia, others in cardiology, and others in pediatrics. Uh, and in pediatric cardiac intensive care, there were the added elements of cardiac surgeons and cardiologists, uh, intensivists, who then applied their skill set to the patient with heart disease. But I, I think what's important to understand is that at some point when the field of cardiac surgery really began to focus on the care of the complex newborn with congenital heart disease, there was a real demand for people to have a knowledge base that included a, a deep understanding of the complexity of the physiology involved in heart disease in the newborn and the infant. And so we began to feel that people needed to train not only in an anesthesia or critical care specialty, but also in a cardiology specialty. And so those fields began to provide really the substrate for uh, training programs that developed uh, around the world, drawing from the expertise of intensive care, cardiology, often from anesthesia as well. So your early training was in pediatrics, cardiology, anesthesia, and critical care. How was it that um, you did four specialties? Is, is that what the advice that you had in the early days? You had to do all of that? And do you still believe that today? Well, remember, at that time, there wasn't even a board in pediatric critical care. And so we had, in some parts of the country, the cardiologists were very active in these emerging pediatric ICUs. Sometimes uh, it was pediatricians who had developed a special interest in the intensive care unit. Uh, and in other places, anesthesiologists were very much involved in critical care for pediatrics. So I went around asking people, what's the best training program since I was a pediatric resident, wanting to do intensive care for children with heart disease. What's the best training program? And as you might imagine, the anesthesiologist said, oh, it must be anesthesia. And the cardiologist said, well, it must be cardiology. And at that time, there wasn't a critical care board just yet. And so I elected to do anesthesia training and cardiology training and then when the board emerged, I also trained here in Boston in pediatric critical care. 
Uh, and it, for me, it worked out very well because it enabled me to have a dialogue with different specialists. A very important one was the dialogue that my anesthesia training in cardiac anesthesia provided with Dr. Castaneda. Uh, so Aldo and I worked together in the operating room, me as a cardiac anesthesiologist, Aldo, of course, as the chief of cardiac surgery here in Boston. And that was a dialogue that uh, built a certain amount of trust and understanding, uh, a fluency about the disease processes in the children, and it translated more easily to the intensive care unit. Well, Dave, I'm sure the question that uh, many of our colleagues around the world are wondering is this. Um, uh, you know, a, a good physician um, is one who's there at the bedside caring, knowledgeable. But at the same time, you need a certain skill set. What is the optimal skill set to really thrive in the pediatric cardiac intensive care unit today? So I think, Jeff, the important thing to emphasize is that what's the most valuable tool you can bring to the bedside is the skill set and the knowledge base, not the card in your pocket that says you're certified in this board or that board. So I see the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care as being truly multidisciplinary in terms of the backgrounds that people may have when they first come to specialize in this intensive care unit. So we often have people that come from an anesthesia background or from a pediatric intensive care background or sometimes from a cardiology background, but they'll come with a different skill set and even knowledge base. And the training program really has to be tailored for that individual, knowing what training they've already received and what training should augment their previous exposure and education. So I think what's really emerging now is the notion that within pediatrics, we have a group of people who finish their training program in pediatrics, but then go on to specialize in both cardiology and in critical care medicine. And I think that provides us with a five-year training program after three years of pediatrics that provides the solid basis for learning how to care for these children with congenital heart lesions in the ICU. But again, I, I think it really depends on the individual and what the skill set and the knowledge base is that's been acquired by that individual and applied to the patient at the bedside. So Dave, could I um, ask you now to move into the current era? Um, you started to lead the pediatric cardiac ICU in the late 80s. You led it for almost uh, 18, 20 years or so and really saw in a remarkable era, when you started, the mortality rate was probably 10% or higher. And when you finished, the mortality rate was probably closer to 2%. What were some of the dramatic achievements during that era? Well, I have a top 10 list that I uh, like to put out there that uh, reminds me of where we've come in the field. And of course, it begins really with cardiopulmonary bypass, as we've uh, discussed. But there were lots of lessons learned from cardiopulmonary bypass and lots of dogma that was refuted. Uh, and we began to treat children differently as part of the bypass routine and in the post-operative period. So advances in bypass were a huge uh, accomplishment for the field uh, to improve outcomes for the children. At the same time, the practitioner's understanding and the skill set evolved enormously. 
Think about the cardiac surgeon that's doing a neonatal arterial switch operation for the first time. And I remember those days, and Dr. Castaneda, of course, was really one of the pioneers in that field. But the skill set required to do a two or three millimeter coronary artery transfer from one great vessel to the other was enormous. And by the same token, the cardiologists learned so much with respect to their diagnostic capability. I remember when Ira Parnes was asked by Dr. Castaneda if he could see the coronaries with uh, an echo machine. And it was an interesting response that Ira gave uh, and really focused around the notion that no one had ever asked him to do that before. And of course, now with the advances in technology that are so important to this field, the echocardiographers can give a very precise description of the coronary artery anatomy. So evolution of pediatric intensive care as a concept also was enormously important for pediatric cardiac intensive care, whether it's ways to ventilate patients, how to handle sepsis, all of the things that uh, challenge us every day in a pediatric ICU where lessons learned and applied to the child with heart disease. Perhaps the most important advance in congenital heart disease treatment was the notion that waiting for a child to get bigger was better. And that notion really, I think, has been refuted now because we know that early intervention in the neonatal period is vital to the long-term well-being of the child. And so the field was challenged with making sure there were folks at the bedside who understood the physiology, especially the physiology of the complex patient with congenital heart disease. And that was really an important driver for subspecialization and the people, including and especially, I think, the nursing staff, where nursing subspecialization really helped to transform this field. Of course, the diagnostic capacity of our cardiologists improved enormously with advances in cardiac catheterization and with echocardiography and MRI. So we were able to make sophisticated diagnosis that in prior years uh, we just weren't really able to do. I think there were also important advances in the pharmacologic support of patients and the drugs that were used to treat uh, issues of low cardiac output or pulmonary hypertension. And of course, we can't forget the advances of mechanical support for the circulation and gas exchange. The advent of ECMO was really embraced by the cardiac intensive care world to transform care. And now it's advanced further to be mechanical support uh, of the heart in terms of ventricular assist devices. And there's also been advances in catheter interventions. Tremendous things are done today in the cath lab that enable us to operate on children and care for them in the ICU when in the previous era, they simply wouldn't have been operable. And then technology has, of course, been very important to our field, uh, along with uh, the teamwork that's required to put a team together that involves intensivists, cardiologists, surgeons, and the whole team of people 
ranging from dietitians and social workers and respiratory therapists and uh, pharmacy experts who were there making rounds at the bedside in a multidisciplinary fashion. So for me, looking back uh, on the field, it's really gratifying to see how it truly is multidisciplinary in the way that many people envisioned the field uh, years and years ago, including here in Boston. Uh, I do want to make a plug for technology. I think in the ICUs, technology is uh, really an important issue. We've got to be able to apply it correctly uh, and expertly. We've got to have evidence that it is the right intervention for our patients, and we continue to be challenged in our practice by having evidence-based medicine drive us as opposed to anecdote and opinion. But technology is really important. Let me just describe one uh, aspect of technology that has made us think about our patient care differently. In our cardiac intensive care unit in Washington, we uh, built it fairly recently and we equipped every room with a video camera that gives us a high resolution view of the entire room and the patient and all of the monitors and the activity that occurs in that room. And what we've learned is that the recollections of folks the next day after a critical event occurred in that room isn't always what actually happened. And we're learning an enormous amount about our care, about our teamwork, about what actually happened to an individual patient by reviewing the minute-to-minute -minute bedside interactions that occurred, especially during critical events at the bedside. Now we'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask a series of questions. Before you answer, could you please tell us what city and country you're practicing in? The first question is, do you debrief or review critical events in the pediatric or cardiac intensive care unit at your institution? As a follow-up question, if you do perform critical event reviews, would you be willing to utilize video-based critical event debriefing in the future if it was technically possible? If the answer is no, could you tell us what are the reasons that you would not be willing to utilize video-based debriefing in the future, even if it was technically possible? If your group does not currently do debriefing of critical events, after hearing this presentation, will you be doing debriefings in the future? If it was possible for your institution to have video-based debriefing, would you be willing to do that in the future? So Dave, um, that's very interesting. We've had similar discussions here, but um, we, we didn't institute monitoring at the bed space in the way that you described at National Children's Hospital, uh, in part because um, we really couldn't agree on how widely we would monitor through all of our ICUs. But more importantly, uh, or more, more concerningly for us, was the whole issue of um, how long do you store and, uh, and maintain that, that digital archive of what happened in the room? And candidly, uh, in the United States, the concerns about malpractice. How did you overcome some of those issues? Well, I think we spent a lot of time with our focus groups and with stakeholders understanding what their concerns might be. We worked closely with our legal department at the hospital. Um, but we were able to, I think, overcome some of the concerns 
by providing certain kinds of safeguards about, in particular, how the employee might be affected. And then, frankly, we just had an initial experience that was a pilot that was very positive for many of the groups. And in fact, we, we found it quite supportive of the uh, healthcare worker at the bedside when we had the recording to actually demonstrate how perfectly executed the care had been, even though the child might have had a bad outcome. Uh, often there were technology limitations or system problems that we can identify by reviewing the recordings from the prior evening or the um, prior morning, uh, so we can go back and look at it. I think it's become common for us now uh, throughout the United States to do debriefings after critical events. And what we found, and our group wholeheartedly agrees, is that the debriefing is much better informed if you have a video of what actually happened. We're all humans, and so we remember things uh, at the time of a crisis that might not be remembered accurately. And so we've really focused on being able to use it as a positive way to have the team work together in the best possible fashion and so that the next time we feel confident that based on our past experience, uh, the team is going to perform optimally together. So I, I think there have been, I can go through lots of examples of how uh, we were able to identify what actually happened in a fashion that was different from people's recollection, but made an important change in the care of the patient as soon as that was discovered. But really, by and large, our whole team feels very positive about uh, recording at the bedside, so much so that the rest of the hospital is now sort of retrofitting uh, rounds, for example, with a, a video camera so we can record rounds, record our parents' participation in rounds, and review that and take it as an opportunity to provide better teamwork, a better message, and a better understanding of how we're interacting both with the patient, but sometimes also the families. We have not yet had uh, a, a real adverse experience with it, and certainly have not had any malpractice-related issues. We, we have a way of categorizing the events in a fashion where some material is stored indefinitely, if we identify a critical event at the bedside, it becomes part of our archive to review these events. And then we have an automatic deletion that occurs depending on how much storage we have uh, between 30 and 60 days after the child uh, had the event recorded. So an automatic uh, deletion of the data does occur in the vast majority of cases. Uh, well, Dave, I have to say that's a, a very admirable um, uh, implementation of a quality improvement uh, initiative. Um, as you know, in the transportation industry, uh, there's calls for that in the airline um, in the cockpit, and it um, uh, sounds like National Children's has taken the lead on that. Um, I wonder if I could now take you to another place. Um, I, I know I must be speaking for colleagues around the world. I'm, I'm sitting here with you. You've got all this experience, and um, I'm sure many of us are wondering about 
aside from the, the global perspective that you have on the improvements in the cardiac intensive care unit, um, people are probably wondering, how do you handle certain critical situations after all these years of practice? And the, the situation that comes to mind for many of us across the world is you're suddenly faced with a child who's got low cardiac output syndrome. And uh, let's imagine for a moment that it's a previously well child who presents with the signs and symptoms that are classically consistent with myocarditis. You're standing at the foot of the bed. Patient's breathing spontaneously. You're pretty certain this is fulminant, evolving myocarditis. Can you walk us through how you're thinking about this patient? What interventions are you starting first? Are you going to start uh, a fluid bolus and an inotrope before you initiate positive pressure? Or would you bring in positive pressure early to try to unload the, the left ventricle? Can you walk us through that? Well, I think every case, of course, is going to be individualized. But we uh, really want to try to emphasize the need to support the heart uh, and to manage uh, mechanical ventilation, but not necessarily as an early intervention. And so we have uh, a tendency to uh, want the patient to breathe spontaneously because Positive pressure ventilation, at least initially, uh, drops the preload and can make that patient relatively unstable. I, I would say in regard to the approach to the airway in a patient with fulminant myocarditis, uh, the anesthesia background and training and having a, a so-called cardiac induction for patients like those with acute myocarditis has really been very helpful for me to know how to slowly uh, titrated drug to gradually take over the airway and to uh, perform an intubation of the trachea in a fashion that's the least disruptive and uh, that has the least imposition on the physiology of the patient. So I think inotropic support and support of the airway are, are, are clearly important. But maybe what I should say, first of all, is that recognizing that it's acute fulminant myocarditis is not always first and foremost on people's mind. And they get behind the eight ball because that particular aspect of the differential diagnosis didn't occur to people. And so when you're intubating the patient and starting uh, inotropic support for the patient, uh, after you've uh, discovered that he's extremely or she's extremely hypotensive and acidotic and not making urine, you'll find yourself really uh, in a corner. And so we want to try to sensitize people to this diagnosis as they come into the pediatrician's office, as they come into the emergency department. And we still have a common tentative diagnosis for these patients as asthma. They're wheezing, uh, they're not feeling well, a little variability in the blood pressure, but the blood pressures usually maintain pretty well until they're about to collapse. But we see signs of impending uh, heart failure in, expressed often in a rising creatinine, it's just a little bit elevated. For me, that's a real red flag that this low cardiac output state is affecting other organs. Uh, but just coming back to the general approach, uh, I think we've all learned that using high doses of vasoconstrictors may give you some short-term rise in the blood pressure, but is not 
in and of itself a long-term solution for this uh, problem. And so we've tried to balance using uh, drugs like dopamine at lower doses with a drug like milrinone, as long as we keep the preload up and titrate in the milrinone without having significant systemic hypotension. Uh, other folks prefer to use uh, dobutamine as a drug that has less vasoconstrictive activity and yet supports uh, the uh, inotropic function and state of the myocardium. So I think that's generally the rationale is inotropic support and some afterload reduction, uh, carefully titrated to the patient to preserve oxygen delivery to the vital organs, including, of course, uh, the kidneys uh, and especially the brain. We support those patients uh, and use as an index of their well-being the um, amount of inotropic support required. And you might be surprised to, to know that if we needed to switch to epinephrine in order to maintain the blood pressure, even at low doses of 0.05 or 0.1 mics per kilo per minute, uh, it would trigger in our institution and others a discussion of whether we should go to mechanical support for the circulation. Uh, typically ECMO, but in the current era, there are also examples of supporting a child in uh, fulminant myocarditis with a ventricular assist device. Uh, there are some hazards with that because if you have an arrhythmia, which is common in this disease, and fibrillate, then if you just have a left ventricular assist device, uh, you'll still have a cardiac arrest situation uh, requiring resuscitation. But the notion that we can intervene earlier with mechanical support is one that's gradually taken hold around the country and the world, and we're using mechanical support much more commonly for these uh, cases once they begin to show those uh, red flags of deteriorating organ function, in particular uh, renal failure. So Dave, could I... Um can I push you a little more um, on the care of this patient? Because I, I know uh, I'm interested, and I know my colleagues must be interested. So um, you, you know, you've outlined the, the general approach. Um, so you're still at the foot of the bed. You have an inotrope going. Um, the patient's still declining. And you're going to have to initiate positive pressure. Could you take us through how you're thinking about that? Do you initiate a fluid bolus before you apply positive pressure? Are you thinking, well, I've got to individualize it, and I'm really going to pay attention to my induction regimen? Take us through how you think about that in the setting of low cardiac output syndrome. Well, I think, first of all, we want to make sure that we have uh, the, the right volume status of the patient. Obviously, if they're preload deficient and one gives them any sort of anesthetic agent, you run the risk of significant systemic hypotension, which will be very problematic for this particular patient. So we want to make sure that we've got enough volume on board. If the patient's uh, been having vomiting and diarrhea associated with their low cardiac output state, they may be volume depleted. On the other hand, as you well know, uh, once you give too much volume with a left ventricular end diastolic pressure that's already elevated, the last thing you'd want to have complicate your induction of anesthesia and securing the airway is significant pulmonary edema, and that for sure can happen with these patients as their left ventricle fails. So giving volume to try to get the blood pressure up and pay the price of pulmonary edema in the midst of airway management is uh, very challenging. 
So we want to assess the patient, the heart rate, the rhythm of the heart, and the blood pressure in order to get the right volume status, support the myocardial function with a drug. I almost always have a dopamine or a dobutamine-like drug running for those uh, patients while I do the induction of anesthesia. And then we pick an agent, depending a little bit on the age of the child, but an agent that will uh, allow us to blunt the sympathetic uh, discharge that may occur from that uh, cold steel from the laryngoscope on the uh, epiglottis. I think it's important not to do um, awake intubations in these patients. I've seen them have uh, surges in catecholamines when they're too lightly anesthetized that the myocardium simply doesn't tolerate. So I really advocate using a drug which could be such as ketamine, uh, if especially the blood pressure seems unstable. Oh, or uh, more commonly, I would probably use a synthetic narcotic like fentanyl in combination with a low dose of a benzodiazepine drug uh, to provide some hypnosis along with the, uh, the narcotic effect of the fentanyl. Uh, I also think for most patients, it's wise to use a short-acting muscle relaxant in order to get adequate control uh, of the airway. But I, I don't know that there's a, a right and wrong recipe. We just do want to avoid drugs that at that moment are going to further depress the myocardium, raise the LA pressure, cause more pulmonary edema in association with hypotension, which can be extremely challenging to try to recover from. Now we'd like to turn to our colleagues around the world and ask a question. Before you answer, could you please tell us what city and country you're practicing in? And the question is this. In the management of low cardiac output syndrome at your institution, can you list in order the general steps you use in the management of these patients? So Dave, um, how has mortality changed in the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care unit from the time that you know, you first started to, to the present day? Well, I think we've seen dramatic improvements in mortality. Everyone knows that. As I think about when I first became interested uh, in medicine and physiology as I was uh, finishing high school, uh, you'll remember that the balloon atrial septostomy was introduced by Bill Rashkin in 1966. But if one looks at the one-year outcome of patients with transposition of the great arteries and an intact ventricular septum in 1966, the mortality was 90%. And today we have one-year mortalities for that very same diagnosis that are less than 3%. An interesting paper also was published from Toronto again in 1966 when cardiac surgery was still really just developing, but starting to get in uh, to a real groove of patients and outcomes that were uh, feasible. Uh, and we saw that an ICU paper from Toronto demonstrated that in 1966, if a patient had congenital heart surgery and required overnight ventilation in an ICU-type environment, the mortality for that patient, the hospital mortality for that patient was greater than 50%. So if your patient needed to be mechanically ventilated overnight, they had more than a 50% chance of dying. 
And now we look at the outcomes today, and of course, overall for our mechanically ventilated patients, mortalities are much less than 5%. And so it was in an era between the late 80s and the late 1990s where there were so many changes in technology, in knowledge base, in skill sets, uh, the organization of critical care, its application to the bedside, and the mortality rates went down from 10% overall in the ICU to something today that's uh, really less than three or even 2% overall in a cardiac intensive care unit. It isn't zero yet, and there's much more to work on, but we've made great progress in producing improved survivals in cardiac intensive care. Well, that's a dramatic trend that you've seen over that era. Uh, so that leads to the question of what are the, what are the new frontiers in the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care unit? Well, I think one of the most important observations that was made as mortality was coming way down was that the developmental outcomes of the children were not as optimal as we would like. They were beginning to have challenges in school performance, for example, but even in the intensive care unit. When we first began operating on patients with transposition of the great arteries with an arterial switch operation, we were seeing EEG seizure rates of 24 or 25%. But those seizure rates, as we changed many aspects of the care of the patient, including cardiopulmonary bypass techniques, have come down to less than 2%. But that's just an example of how we've focused on the neurologic outcomes as being really important. So we don't want these patients simply to survive. We need them to survive and thrive. Dave. Um you know, looking back, what was the greatest paradigm shift in the development of the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care? Well, for me, I think one of the very important things was the recognition that there was value in intervening on the newborn to try to provide corrective surgical procedures in the newborn period. And that move really forced us to understand newborn physiology in a way that we hadn't fully appreciated before and to develop a team of subspecialists that were expert in caring for the post-operative needs of those patients. And not just caring and reacting, but anticipating what was gonna happen. I think one of the observations that we and others made, in fact, others before us had made, we just simply hadn't paid enough attention to it, was that the infant who just undergone cardiopulmonary bypass came back to the intensive care unit and instead of having progressive improvement in their hemodynamics, often, although not always, but often had a sharp decline in cardiac output for the first few hours after cardiopulmonary bypass. So knowing that the patient was going to have an operation that ultimately was the right operation, but really spoke against the dogma that a good operation fixes everything. For those in the intensive care unit, we knew that after 24 hours we would get to that point, but the first 24 hours of care were very important in terms of anticipating a decline in the low cardiac output and then assisting in the recovery uh, to the next day and the next days after that. So what were the lessons learned from that? How did you, how did you advance the field based on that, that recognition? Well, we tried to make use of 
the biology that had been discovered that could lend itself to therapeutic applications in children. And we knew that afterload reduction was going to be especially important to the newborn myocardium. Uh, and so using a group of fellows who'd gone on to become attending physicians throughout North America, uh, we uh, organized the so-called Primacore trial where we looked at milrinone in trying to prevent the development of low cardiac output to ultimately see, of course, if we could change the hemodynamics, prevent low cardiac output, and have a positive impact uh, on patients' overall well-being and outcomes in the ICU. It was a, a limited study uh, in the sense that it uh, didn't necessarily show that mortality was better, but it did enable us to come together as a group of more than 30 centers to have the same protocol uh, and to actually have a multi-center trial that would begin to provide some evidence for the basis of our practice rather than just anecdote. And so the Primacore trial really did demonstrate that a group of patients that we saw as being at risk for development of low cardiac output could be lessened by pretreatment with uh, milrinone uh, helping them to avoid this period of low cardiac output. But there are a lot of other factors, including and especially the advances in cardiopulmonary bypass that have perhaps been just as important as the development of drug. And I especially view the Primacorp trial as one that enabled us to come together as a field and conduct a protocol that gave us some evidence for the basis of our practice. So Dave, what are the challenges to the field of pediatric cardiac intensive care today? Well, first of all, mortality is not zero. And that would be our ambition, is to have zero mortality for all children with heart disease who came into the cardiac intensive care unit. So I think there are technology advancements, there uh, is more biology to be discovered, uh, and there really is going to need to be a more organized approach to evidence-based medicine applied to patients in the cardiac intensive care unit. One last additional challenge, which as an administrator, I really need to mention, and that is how we can apply all this technology, take on the sickest of the sick, have ambitions to cure congenital heart disease, treat them in the ICU, improve the outcomes and do it at reduced cost. So the value equation that's important in cardiac intensive care is truly a challenge for us to improve our outcomes and reduce the expense of achieving better outcomes. Dave Wessel, uh, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation and uh, I know I speak on behalf of many of my colleagues around the world for Thank you for all that you've done to advance the field of uh, pediatric cardiac intensive care. Thank you, Jeff. It's been my privilege. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.